Hello. We recently passed the 25th anniversary of New Labour's election victory in 1997. On the left, your attitude to that moment says a lot about you. If you think it truly was a new dawn, you're probably a moderate who supports Keir Starmer. If you think of it as a poignant moment which presaged a missed opportunity, you're more likely to miss the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. And if you have these different visceral reactions to that date, you'll almost certainly be able to rationalise your feelings with facts and figures. So how we look at the past says a lot about who we are. That was true of Brexit. It was true of the toppling of the statue of Edward Coulson. But contested history, different forms of nostalgia, aren't a new symptom of the culture wars. Far from the witticism that nostalgia ain't what it used to be, it turns out that the core characteristics of nostalgia can be found in any era, although the terrain upon which the nostalgia wars are fought differs from age to age. This is among the conclusions of a brilliant new history of nostalgia, which we'll be discussing on the latest edition of Bridges to the Future. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by the author of Rural Nostalgia, A Backward History of Britain. That's historian Hannah Rosewoods. How are you, Hannah? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm very good, thank you. I absolutely love the book and I want to get into some of the themes. But, you know, let me start with a conventional question, which is, what is it that led you to want to write the book? I mean, I think perhaps the stakes have risen since I I had the idea for the book. I was very interested in the debates we were having about imperial nostalgia around Brexit and the ways in which, you know, the Blitz spirit is perpetually invoked by modern politicians. You know, I really wanted to write a book that could appeal to that and to historicise our experience of nostalgia. But, you know, then I didn't quite expect that the culture wars would reach the pitch they have. You know, about the time that I was ready to submit the proposal for the book, the statue of Edward Colston was tipped into Bristol Harbour. So it was a very strange experience to see, you know, the Prime Minister and Cabinet Ministers going on television and saying, historians are trying to do Britain down or, you know, kind of waging a, you know, shamefully unpatriotic campaign. So, yeah, I ended up kind of really wanting to address that. You must feel ambivalent about that, that there's this kind of pretty awful culture war going on, but you're thinking, well, this is going to help the relevance of my (laughs) book. Well, yeah, I mean, I hope hope we kind of arrive at a point where we, we move on from these debates about history. But I don't think, I mean, I think your book suggests that that contestation of the past, different types of nostalgia is, is inevitable. Before we get into some of those kind of themes, tell me about the format of the book, because that's one of its many attractions, the the backward history and the periodization that you've chosen as well. Yeah, I mean, I think what really inspired the, the backward structure of the book, which you know begins in the present day and then travels back step by step, to uncover the nostalgias of the past, right back until the English Reformation in the 16th century. And I think that was really inspired by the kind of irony of our perpetual nostalgia, that we look back to people who themselves were looking backwards, and that even as we remember people in the past, we can forget how powerfully they were feeling their own nostalgia. Yeah, and it is interesting because I think 
each kind of era, I was more surprised to see that they too look back. It's a mm. kind of weird thing, isn't it? We think we think the only history is our own history. We don't realize that everybody's got a history. And everyone, you know, everyone also has that kind of thing, which is thinking about today, thinking about what's just happened, and then thinking way back and choosing mm. the point at which the story begins, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I think our nostalgia for the past has always relied on a kind of dual narrative that, you know, you want to go back to a golden age somewhere in the past, but that kind of relies on a narrative of things kind of losing their way somewhere along the path towards more recent history. So let's pick up on some of the themes in the book. So one is the prevalence of kind of pastoral, kind of rural memory that, that again and again, when we want to look back, we seem to want to look back to a time when we all lived in the countryside, mythical, though, our view of what countryside life might be. So tell us a bit about that, you know, examples of that kind of reaching back to the rural past. And why do you think it is that we so often associate the good old days with, with living in the countryside? Well, you know, I think in many ways it is very reasonable of people to be looking back to the past and and feeling nostalgia for natural landscapes that you know perhaps aren't there anymore in the way that they once existed you know we are living on the brink of environmental crisis so i don't want to dismiss people's nostalgia in that way at all but you know it is ironic that we might look back to you know a victorian edwardian heyday of you know our image of people living in small villages rural communities. We kind of might look back for inspiration to Thomas Hardy's novels, for example. And I mean, actually, that, you know, isn't the way that most people were living. Britain was, you know, even at the turn of the 20th century, predominantly urbanised. But, you know, we might look back and, and think that looks like, you know, a rural idyll of peace and serenity. But actually, Victorians and Edwardians were themselves looking back to a time before industrial towns and cities had sprung up, you know, before smokestacks and factories could be seen on the horizon. Our landscapes are constantly changing. Even in the 18th century, people were mourning rural landscapes before the Enclosure Acts that kind of, you know, brought open field farming into, you know, smaller scale, privately owned farms and the kind of loss of common land and the folk memory that that represented. Yeah, and it's interesting that here, as occurs almost everywhere, whether you're a kind of radical or on the left or whether you are more on the right, more of a conservative, you can then transpose those kind of values to this. And so if you're on the left, you look back to the rural communities as a way of kind of critiquing industrialization, as a way of honouring collectivism or trade or artisanship. If you're on the right, it's more about tradition, order, a world where people accepted and were happy with paternalistic authority. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's very interesting how often conservative nostalgias for the rural past look very similar to left-wing nostalgias. So, you know, for example, William Morris at the end of the 19th century and the arts and crafts movement looked back to, you know, what they saw as a kind of merry England, you know, medieval heyday where, you know, men took, you know, pleasure in their labour. They made beautiful things with their hands. 
they work together as a community. And you know, actually, that's very similar to nostalgias on the political right in the 19th century. You know, Benjamin Disraeli, for instance, you know, look back very longingly to a lost feudal order where, you know, his perspective on that society was aristocrats taking care of their dependents, you know, looking after the poor with charity, entertaining them at communal festivities. So yeah, I suppose it's a bottom up versus a top down perspective on the same social structure. Let's look at another theme, which is remarkably common, you know, I think in every one of your chapters, these very different eras going right back to the Tudor era, but it's there all the time, is this kind of notion of progress and affluence being a good thing and people wanting to talk about the way it's improved their lives and recognising how tough it was for them when they were younger or for their parents or for their grandparents. But at the same time, this sense that as we become better off, we somehow lose our moral compass, that it's corrosive of our character and our community. This this too is, uh, reading your book, I thought, well, we will be having this debate about how progress gives us new opportunities, but also corrodes our character forever. It seems to be kind of hardwired into us almost. Yeah. And I think people do also like to get competitive with their hardship and say, oh, well, you know, you don't know you're born back in my day. You know, we we made the best of it, but we didn't have much. And, you know, I think there is a dark side to these nostalgias. You know, they're often mobilized to stand in the way of social progress and to say, well, if wealth doesn't make us happy anyway, you know, why would we put our efforts into, you know, redistributing income and pursuing social equality which you know the fact that we've been having these debates since the 16th century is quite tragic but I mean I hope that there is a more optimistic picture to be pulled out of those nostalgias that actually people articulate what's important to them when they're mourning what they feel they've lost and what people are longing for is social connection you know, this idea that, you know, people were, were close and knit, they had their emotional needs met by their communities more in the past. And, you know, that might not give us an accurate perspective on what life was actually like in the past. But, you know, it does tell us what people think is important in the societies in which they live. Yeah. And there's something here, Hannah, about a particular point of the book where, Although we're talking about these kind of different perspectives as being eternal and almost irresolvable, they'll always, always be there. There are also moments in the book when there is a kind of settled view, and often you question that view. And one example of this is is this kind of settled view that the demolition of old working class neighborhoods in favor of high rise flats and people moving out to those kind of council estates on the suburbs. Now, we all know that lots of that went wrong, but there's a kind of settled view that it was a complete disaster now. And as your book reminds us, actually, at the time, the vast majority of people living in kind of back-to-back terraced houses in the East End or in Glasgow were delighted by the fact that they had central heating and bathrooms and and stuff like that. And that helps us to have a more balanced view of that time. So I think that's, you know, one of the other powers of your book is that 
is that on the one hand, we are conflicted always about what we want to remember and different nostalgias. But also, there are these moments when we all appear to agree on something. And as, as a good historian, those are the points at which you particularly want to prod us and say, well, hold on, it's not as simple as that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because um, often a lot of the social studies that we as historians have to go on about how people felt about their new dwellings, whether that was in you know high-rise flats or in new towns, often those social researchers themselves had these you know very preconceived ideas about working-class communities that we might you know call traditional, in inverted commas. You know, they were kind of often university educated social researchers, often on the political left. And, you know, they had these very romantic images of, you know, working class solidarity, mutual help, all of which, you know, to an extent did exist. But they, you know, were kind of quite blind to the downsides of people living at such close quarters in, in slums and tenement communities. And actually, when they when they interviewed people, you know, they found them, you know, explaining that it was very difficult to live life at, at such close quarters. But I think also, you know, we have this idea that community declined over the second half of the 20th century. And often we're not quite clear what we mean by community. Because if you grow up at very close quarters with people, you don't always have a choice about whether you socialise with them or, you know, how much your business becomes everyone else's business. But actually, you know, often people choosing to move to new areas enabled more voluntary forms of community. You know, for instance, we actually see much more, you know, towards the 1970s and 1980s and onwards that people invite other people home or people socialise in their homes, you know, when they have nice spaces where they can entertain they're able to socialise with people, you know, in a, in a wider network and people that they've they share interests with and have chosen, you know, to form a community with. And of course, when people went in, when local authorities went in to knock down these tower blocks that they assume everybody hated, what they found was that there was now people said, well, no, we're attached to this. You know, again, it's, they had the same ambivalence. It was, you know, it may not be perfect. It may have a bad reputation, but actually, no, we like where we live. We we like our neighbours. So this is where history can help us a little bit, avoid making those presumptive mistakes in the future. That ambivalence that people have, even people who live in places that seem, you know, n- not the most salubrious, that ambivalence is inherent, it seems. Well, yeah, I mean, it, you know, the story is always more complex than the prevailing narrative with, you know, anything we might want to look at. It's probably normal, I think, that some people like living in houses and other people would prefer flats and some people, you know, enjoy urban living and others might prefer life in the suburbs. You know, I think it's it doesn't seem contradictory to me that we all have different preferences and that, you know, other people throughout history have, you know, themselves made their own calculations about, you know, what balance of pros and cons they'd like in their lives. Exactly. But I think one of the things that your book helps us to see is that that sensitivity to the diversity of people's experiences and perspectives and preferences is sometimes lost because nostalgia can be very powerful. A nostalgic meme, you know, which is, we lost a sense of community when we stuck up these tower blocks can get in the way of, well, I know it's it's more complicated. Now let's take another theme, which is a little bit connected to this notion of affluence is corrosive, but it's more important than that is it seems as though in every era, there is some intellectual telling us that society is falling to pieces. I mean, almost in an <laughs> apocalyptical sense at all 
at all times. Mm. What's the link of that to nostalgia? Because that sense of it's all falling apart. You can't simply describe that in terms of, well, we are now here and it's about the future. Any account that says it's all falling apart has to also have a story about the past, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it sounds a tremendously obvious point, but obviously no one has the benefit of hindsight. But I, I think we often have this idea with you know nostalgia in particular that we expect kind of society to manifest kind of one view or the other, you know, I think often, you know, historians have kind of in the past have kind of looked back at ages and designated some ages as, oh, well, it was a comfortable and settled age when, you know, the prevailing current was to be content with progress and at ease with it. And then, you know, they've often identified other times as, you know, particularly anxious. I mean, I'm a specialist in the late Victorian Edwardian period, which has been identified as an incredibly anxious time. But, you know, I think with nostalgia, you can have both. You know, in periods of intense nostalgia have often been periods of extreme optimism and hope for the future. I don't think with nostalgia that people have always necessarily wholeheartedly decried the present and the future and, and longed for the past. You know, I think often nostalgia is the flip side of a widespread acceptance of change. And it's also a way in which narratives of change get grounded because those narratives of change can often be, well, this is a return to a lost theme. That was a kind of Brexit element, wasn't it? Which was kind of this kind of bizarre attempt to say, well, there's a parallel between Brexit and the break with the Catholic Church in Tudor times. So this is once again, you know, England stroke Britain, and a point you make often in the book is the conflation of those two ideas by English people, I hasten to add. But this is a return to our willingness to break away from the yoke of Europe. Yeah. But I mean, often the people, certainly in politics, invoking nostalgia tend to be the people, you know, arguing for rapid and transformative change. You know, the, the ways in which they're drawing on the past are more imaginative and rhetorical and emotional you know, I, we often have this kind of sense with Brexit that leavers were, you know, they were nostalgic for empire, that Brexit was motivated by imperial nostalgia. And people often have framed that as, you know, people in Britain can be stuck in the past, you know, completely backwards facing and longing for former glories. And I, I don't think that is how nostalgia works at all. You know, people you know, like Jacob Rees-Mogg, for instance, who, you know, constantly draw on history are, you know, arguing for this, you know, rapid change, you know, deregulated global Britain that will leave the EU, go it alone. It's often a case of the past providing a comforting story that enables us to set out and face the future, which in fact is how sociologists and psychologists will often talk about nostalgia and, you know, the, the kind of emotional functions it has for us. Well, of course, this all, doesn't it, revolves around that when Dominic Cummings decides to put the word back mm. into the phrase take control and that's a moment when a lot come and we're not here to talk about brexit but a lot comes from that moment because exactly as you say anna if you're arguing for brexit you can argue for it as a revolutionary leap forward or you can argue for it as a nostalgic return and the moment that word back goes in it turns into a primarily nostalgic project even though as you say its intentions were ultimately 
revolutionary, absolutely fascinating. Now, I want to just choose, Hannah, a couple of eras, particular eras, particular elements of those eras, because, you know, one of the lovely things about the book is the, the periodization. And and let's talk about the mid-war period. And I, what I found particularly interesting about the mid-war period, the interwar period, the kind of 20s and 30s, I guess, is, is the worries about the democratization of culture. And this is linked again to nostalgia. And it goes back to our earlier talk, earlier conversation about rural areas, because one of the worries was that these newly affluent working classes and lower middle classes were insisting on coming out into the countryside and having cups of tea and driving around. And this was a terrible thing because it was taking away the wonderful kind of peace and calm of the countryside. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, well, you know, absolutely, as you say, you know, it's a a fascinatingly anti-people going out into nature (laughs) period in our history. And, you know, it certainly stands in in very stark contrast to Victorian and Edwardian inquiries into Britain's social problems, which, you know, had identified the main problem as being, you know, more and more people are living in cities and they don't have any access to nature. and, and, And that's terrible. And that's changing the character of Britain in ways that, you know, felt unsettling. And then, yeah, as you say, you know, efforts to get people out into the countryside are so successful by the interwar period that elites start to have a real panic about what's happening to the countryside and whether there'll be any of it left if everyone continues to disperse into it. But actually, there's a hugely classed element to it, that they're not so much defending natural beauty per se as nature as their own privileged preserve. And they're expressing you know, a huge nostalgia for the social structure of the rural shires. You know, the kind of rich man at his castle, poor man at his gates, you know, view of British society. And yeah, that's that's completely connected to, you know, the currents of democratisation in the interwar period, you know, the extension of the vote to all adult men and women. Do you think, Hannah, the English nostalgia is particularly kind of elite formed in the sense that there's a kind of Marxist view of English perceptions of history and culture, which Perry Anderson famously wrote about, which is that because in the sense we never had a working class revolution in this country, we had the Civil War, but we didn't have a kind of moment when the middle classes and the working classes joined together and overthrew the elite. What basically happened in Britain was that the aristocratic elite and the commercial elite did a deal and held on to their kind of power. And I remember Perry Anderson in that piece, The Origin of the Present Crisis, you know, he he kind of argued that that's why, in a sense, our view of the past is not one that has the kind of demotic nature of being a history of ordinary people, but it does tend to be one that is received by our elite. Is that, do you think that holds water? I mean, yes and no. I think we do often forget and underplay the left-wing history of nostalgia. You know, I've briefly talked about William Morris already, who, for instance, he has this utopian bit of science fiction called News from Nowhere, published in the 1880s, which is, you know, kind of a vision of the future that looks a lot like the medieval past, reimagined as a kind of pastoral communist Disneyland, where there's been a class revolution that swept away the structures of Victorian society and and people have gone back to the land to live in these small-scale egalitarian communities. So there's a very strong kind of pastoral nostalgic tradition on the left. Chartists as well, earlier in the 19th century, 
they articulated their calls for working class political rights through, you know, calls to restore a merry England that they saw as a kind of golden age for the dignity and rights of working men. So we do have this very long and strong tradition. And I don't think pastoral nostalgia is necessarily elitist or even mostly elitist, you know, elite centric. But I do think our, our vision of British history at the moment generally is very top down. You know, certainly the way in which it's being articulated by the current government. You know, they will often, for example, counterpose protesters to people who, you know, are defending history. They'll counterpose protests to British tradition. And, you know, actually, of course, we have a very long <laughs> and rich tradition of protest in Britain. But, you know, that's often something that's kind of downplayed in the popular imagination. And we, you know, perhaps look back to images of, you know, upstairs, downstairs harmony, you know, the kind of Downton Abbey model of the past. There's one other era that really, I mean, the whole book fascinated me, another era that really fascinated me. And, and, and this is the kind of journey of an idea. And so this is going back to kind of the last era you look at. And this is around the kind of nostalgia for the pre-Reformation period. And what is interesting about this, and I'll summarise it badly, and you can you can elaborate on Anna, but what I kind of read through this is that what starts as a kind of quite a radical and dangerous form of nostalgia. So that's amongst Catholics, basically, or Catholic sympathisers. There is a nostalgia for the pre-Reformation, and there is a horror at the way in which in the Reformation, for example, so much destruction was wrought on the kind of physical heritage of, of the country. But then this radical and dangerous idea, you could even be imprisoned for it, starts to become more anodyne. It starts to become owned by everybody and starts then to evolve into this kind of merry England that the religious element is taken out of it, as it were. It becomes more anodyne and then eventually almost becomes like an opium for the masses. It becomes a, a kind of general mythology, which is used to kind of comfort people and give people a warm glow about the wonderful history of England. So I, I was fascinated by that process whereby a kind of slightly dangerous idea then just, you know, going to gradually becomes something much less problematic. I mean, I think it's a fantastic example of how our memories of history, you know, our memories of the past that are grounded in reality, slowly over time kind of transpose into nostalgia for a rose-tinted fantasy version of those memories. So yeah, as you say, you know, in the in the immediate aftermath of the Reformation, you know, people could invoke the, the merry world or, you know, the merry England of the past in a way that could could get the speaker arrested. It was, you know, seen as a kind of seditious movement that was, you know, explicitly kind of anti-monarchy, you know, a revolutionary sentiment. But then, the, you know, the, the more time went on, the more Merry England came to refer less to like an actual reality that had existed or might have existed before the Reformation. And more of a kind of like an ahistorical, cosy time of yore. You know, the kind of, I think we still have this idea of the medieval period today is a kind of unchanging time of yore. You know, Robin Hood and his merry men, outlaws in the forest, hearty peasants, you know, drinking ale, you know, a kind of time of plenty. Shakespeare's As You Like It, I think, kind of is rooted in that same fantasy. So yeah, I mean, it is it is inherently less seditious to to yearn for a time that never really existed. And then it you know it is easier for for in turn you know those in charge to promise that fantasy as a kind of populist crowd pleaser. 
So, you know, by the time we get to the restoration of the monarchy with Charles II at the end of the 17th century, you know, he's like explicitly styling himself as, as the merry monarch who's going to restore, you know, the Spanish time of like saints days and May games and communal festivities. But really, people are no longer yearning for that. The past as it actually existed, you know, they're perfectly comfortable with their self-image as English Protestants who can kind of harmlessly appropriate the traditions of the Catholic past. And I think what I derived from that is that, as it were, you know, the kind of establishment strategy for dealing with a nostalgia which you can't get rid of is to take away its kind of radicalism, to, to accept that people want to remember that past in a particular way, but then to disassociate it from its kind of radical moorings. And that's something which comes up a, a few times in the book. Um, Anna, we're drawing to a close, but one, one other thing, I mean, I, you know, I'm a social scientist, not a historian, and you talk right at the end of the book, I think you mentioned a bit earlier, about Johannes Hoffer, who's famous because he was the psychiatrist who first named nostalgia, or the doctor who first named it as a psychiatric condition amongst Swiss soldiers. And of course, for a long time, I think early into, into early in the 20th century, nostalgia was listed as a psychiatric condition before it kind of becomes diffused as an element of depression, for example. And as a sociologist, you know, the role of nostalgia in culture, in group identity, and also, of course, in terms of kind of political studies, the role that we've talked about this in terms of Brexit, for example, of nostalgia, it almost made me feel by the end that we need a kind of, you know, we need nostalgic studies as a subject, as a kind of interdisciplinary subject. It, it, it's so rich. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, my background is in the history of emotions. So I guess my kind of bread and butter of thinking about history involves pulling in insights from sociology and psychology, anthropology, you know, a kind of host of different disciplines. I think it is fascinating how in all those subjects, you know, separately and together, there's been this broad move from seeing nostalgia as something pathological, you know, associated with depression and melancholy. You know, even, you know, in the 17th century, you know, Johannes Hoffer was saying, you know, you could die of nostalgia. You know, it was a terrible thing that you had to alleviate immediately. But I do think it's interesting that, you know, certainly in the 21st century, researchers from all sorts of fields are emphasising that actually nostalgia has a lot of positive functions when it comes to regulating our emotions, that it's it's very important and central to us, the way in which we mentally time travel and, you know, root ourselves in, you know, comforting memories of the past that then like, embolden us to step out and face the future. So yeah, I think I completely agree. We should have uh, nostalgia studies as a subdiscipline. You know, that I guess there's also in turn the darker side to well, especially political nostalgia, but the ways in which we when we link ourselves very selectively to our ancestors in the past, the ways in which that can be marshaled to exclude and marginalize in turn. But yeah, I think there are there are so many fascinating different directions at the moment. Well, what about you, Hannah? I, mean, I I've just moved to York. And this is a nostalgic life choice. It's because I lived in York when I was a kid. And not only am I going back to that time, even though I actually wasn't all that happy when I was there, but I, I, I had weird. This is the peculiarity of memory, isn't it? I, 
I love the associations of the place, even though I know, objectively speaking, I wasn't very happy as a kid when I was there. But also, of course, the great thing about York is because it's just a big heritage park. It's not changed. I mean, it's it's completely the same as when I lived there 50 years ago. What about you, Hannah? You know, there you are, brilliant historian, objectively describing all of this. Where are your nostalgic soft zones? I mean, I'm very nostalgic. I'm very sentimental. You know, I think I think we all are. We are, you know, biologically, psychologically primed to, you know, forget the the aches and pains, the frustrations, the sadness and the squabbles, you know, of our past lives and, you know, and to remember the good times. You know, I think I'm as susceptible as anyone to it. I do think as a historian, though, it is very important that we balance that when we're looking at the past. You know, I think we need to balance our impulse to rose tint the past against a critical awareness that that sometimes our emotions aren't pointing us in the right direction when it comes to interpreting the past. And that is a lovely thought on which to end your book, Rural Nostalgia, A Backwards History of Britain, is an absolute joy to read. It's it's one of those books that I kept talking to other people about as I read it. But also it put me in mind of something that I've talked about on this podcast to other people, and that's about memory. Talking recently to the writer, historian Nogra Rika about this and about the importance of recognising that what we remember is not the thing, but the last memory of the thing. That in a sense, our memory is like a game of Chinese whispers, that something happened and that each time we remember it, we remember the last time we remembered it, not the thing itself. And the thing about great history is it helps us overcome that kind of Chinese whispers nature Mm. of memory and enables us to go back to the source. And that's one reason it matters so much. Thank you. Oh, thank you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.